capitalism has brought us to this point in large point. But in recent months, I'm starting to think that they also, the same system, the same people to to an extent that I perceive are part of the problem are going to wind up being a part of the solution. And this is why nobody that holds assets, banks, insurance agencies, actuaries, people are monitoring risk. Those entities are going to be looking at their loan portfolios. They're going to be looking at their insurance portfolio. They're going to be looking at their asset portfolio and go, wait a minute, we don't want to be left holding the bag. You're listening to the Beyond Buildings podcast, where we talk to innovative leaders on how they create optimal value in a smart world context. We combine strategy and technology talk to absorb reality, embrace uncertainty, and to go from path dependency to path creation. It's smart cities, it's smart buildings, it's data strategies, it's construction, real estate, and industry 4.0. And most of all, it's smart people. And remember, it's the data that you don't have that will change your life with your host, the future shaper, the ecosystem architect, Nicholas Wern. This episode is sponsored by Iden PropTech OS. Iden PropTech OS is an operating system for property owners that unlocks all smart building benefits in a future-proof way, used and supported by Microsoft Azure and Scandinavia's largest property developers. Stay tuned to discover more about them and why companies love this solution. Welcome to the Beyond Buildings podcast, and today we're talking to Robert W. Cross from Cross Consulting Services. And as always, I want to find out every bit of detail from you, Robert, what you've done, what you're doing, what you're going to do in the future. Thank you, Nicholas. It's uh, great to come on the podcast. As you know, I've been listening since inception and have uh, been kind of bugging you a bit to come on. I'm excited that we get to do it, and thank you. So I work as a business strategy consultant. I'm the founder and CEO of Cross Consulting Services. Next year will be our seventh year in business. And the focal point of my work is as a business model engineer, working with CEOs and founders, clean tech and renewable energy companies. My postgraduate work was in banking and finance, and I was always interested in economics and the uh, laws of supply and demand. And around the turn of the century, I knew that I wanted to work on climate. I was aware how big of an issue that was going to be. I had some thoughts around energy and what needed to happen this century. It's amazing, but we're kind of 20 years into the century already. So I intentionally relocated from New York City to Portland, Oregon in 2008 and uh, was working for the Energy Trust of Oregon in what's called uh, program design, essentially designing energy efficiency and uh, renewable energy programs for utility clients. At that time, it was specifically in their multifamily and home program. That was my initial taste around energy. One of the very first jobs I had at the Energy Trust, and this goes back, if you think, to 2008, quite a while ago now, the price of PV, as an example, for solar was exponentially higher than it is today. You know, as we're talking 12 years later, the thought process was, well, this costs a lot of money and we need to figure out finance solutions. We need to have some financial tools, incentivize homeowners and small businesses to move forward with energy efficiency or renewable energy project upgrades in the built environment. 
So I, I wound up as the point person and the chief architect of what became known as Green Street Lending. Green Street Lending was the first retail loan program in America between Umqua Bank, which is a publicly traded bank in the western part of the United States and the Energy Trust that was specifically designed for homeowners and business owners to fund energy efficiency and renewable project upgrades. So that was my exposure to energy efficiency and utility programs and program design and all that type of stuff earlier in the past decade. Awesome. Going back 12 years, PV, like photovoltaic, and your solar power stuff, that was super expensive. What is the situation right now in terms of pricing, as well as sort of like the affinity of using photovoltaic solar power to drive this through? What has happened? What are the differences? Yeah, so there's a law for this. The rate of a technology is adopted, the pricing goes down, the corollary between market adoption and pricing. So very recently, renewable energy became the cheapest electricity in the world. So the market adoption is significant now, right? But there's still different hurdles. The utilities are a uh, fragmented market. There's economic moats. There's challenges between peak demand times and capacity and transmission of power and all these many, many things. I think it's interesting because there's a corollary to the built environment. In theory, these technologies should be readily applicable today. And there's better technologies that we can employ today. There's a lot of barriers in doing so. Part of it is, well, what do we do with the outmoded technologies? Somebody sold them and somebody's under contract. And part of it is how do you integrate systems? And part of it is people that are standing in the way and outmoded ways of thinking that currently have a lot of market share. There's a reason why they're in the way and they don't necessarily want to lose their toehold. But what we're seeing with renewable energy is mass adoption of the technology. And now one of the challenges as that's happening and as that's impacting the grid, where does that energy get stored? How does that energy get distributed? So in California, where I live in San Diego, for those that are not aware, California is actually the fifth biggest economy in the world, obviously massive. And California is at the forefront because of climate change and the wildfires and things of that ilk. Many clean tech startups, renewable energy startups, storage startups are here. And they're also butting up against how the utility works in the state and how energy is currently transmitted. And when you have those two forces coming together, I kind of, in one regard, see clean technology and renewable energy as being an irresistible force. But then the immovable object is how business has been done for many, many years and utilities are old business models and there's a lot of tension in the middle. Super interesting. So I know that there is electricity in the grid but it's not getting dispersed accurately to the ones that need it most. And there's not like data-driven decisions or at least real-time data-driven decisions made by the ones that are building new factories, hospitals, assets. And there are existing players in the mix and they sort of stand in the way. I think it's like part, they're just used to slow decision-making. As in, let's take this, it's going to take five years or 10 years. And then you have the classic startups that want to see these things happen faster. All these things combined. I have had something on my mind, and that is, let's say you have renewable energy. 
PV or hydro here in Sweden or whatever that could be, right? And then is there still a sense of having energy efficiency for buildings? If the energy that comes to the buildings is renewable, if it's not sort of detrimental for the society, coal or shale gas or whatever, I don't know, all these kind of things that sort of destroy the environment or bad in some way, shape for the planet or for people as a whole, will there be a need for energy efficiency? Is there still like value in that when it comes to those aspects or is that more about pricing perspective? Yes, unequivocally, there is a huge value and need for energy efficiency. A kilowatt that's not needed to be used is better than any kilowatt, so to speak. When you think about innovation and adoption and things that are sexy or ideas and forward-thinking mechanisms, but energy efficiency of the built environment and looking at how to reduce waste should be the very first thing anyone does when you're considering like your building portfolio or your energy portfolio. Conservation is critical. Why is it critical in terms of optimizations or operations? Or is it again like is it cost and then it drives net operating profit? Or what is it? It's all of it. You can reduce your utility bills. If you're not spending money on energy usage, you could take that capital outlay and invest it in a new employee or invest it in a new business line. When I think of it from a financial perspective, if I can reduce my debt burden, the cost of capital, if I can reduce my cost of energy, there's a better allocation of that capital. No, no, I get so like the alternative costs of having that sunk into energy costs. What I'm after is more, let's move somewhere where you have the first grid net positive bill. So you generate your own electricity, they have the battery, they can store energy, they can sort of like sell it to the market, they can actually make money out of it. Take that combined with now when we see more proliferation of getting people back to buildings, more focus on the human people perspective, more gadgets, uh, sucking out energy from the grid. If you have that sort of your own energy factory with your smart portfolio, then energy, it's less of that cost perspective. And you can use as much as you want. You're just going to get it from the sun. And is it again more as in the 330-300 rule when we're talking about real estate? $3 are being spent on energy costs, 30 on maintenance, 300 on well-being productivity. Energy is sort of like the one that you go after first. I think that's what you alluded to, right? As in you want to go after energy savings, efficiency, the first one, and then you move to the next ones. But if that is covered in a way, does it still make sense to do energy efficiency in those terms? Or is it more like, okay, we have access to free-flowing energy as much as we want to. Let's just use it. Or we sort of like sell it back to the grid and then uh, someone else can use it because they are in need and they haven't harnessed the sun. They don't have a Dyson sphere yet, right? I think you bring up a good point. Up to 70%, you can improve a conventional building's efficiency. It's still like fairly significant. I think irrespective of a building's baseline and its delta on generating energy, it's useful and helpful to be like, where are we and where can we reduce energy consumption before we do clean energy? And then you can also start thinking of things like carbon sequestration. This is a whole other conversation, but if you start looking at climate data and where we are, we need every tool in the toolkit to mitigate the current trajectory or the worst possible damage. So I can't sit here and ignore energy efficiency. I get that part, right? 
of course, we want to do our part in doing this fast and getting to energy savings and all these kind of things. That's what I'm after because it's like working with construction now. I see that the buildings are not necessarily that smart. You're building a lot of silo solutions uh, that are supposed to be smart on top of a dumb infrastructure. So now when I'm working in construction, it's super interesting to understand sort of, okay, maybe we should actually build smart from start first and control the flow of information from the very get-go instead of building upon a broken industry. So this is sort of my point as in, Instead of doing energy optimization, energy efficiency, why not have solar power plants, have like an infinite amount of energy electricity to the buildings, to the portfolios, and then energy efficiency, is it moot? Is it still necessary? Or can we move over to the other things that either cost more money or is more wasteful for society at large or for climate change, if you know what I mean? No, I understand what you're saying. I still think a dollar saved is a dollar earned. So I can't look at it any other way. I still consider how to reduce waste in space. So unless I'm missing something, my brain is too locked on that. I'm just trying to be a bit, I wouldn't say futuristic, because all of this is possible today. This is possible, right? Like the efficiency of this, you know, PV stuff, photovoltaic, solar powered, it's getting better and better each year. It's not only getting cheaper, but it's getting better. So I'm just thinking as in, instead of looking at it from a historic perspective as a scarce resource or there's not enough electricity in the grid or it's coming from coal power plants and all these kind of things, we need to reduce this in order to get more efficient or think about climate change. Why not just remove that from the equation? It goes back to the smart building play and companies getting investments or solving silo problems which are symptoms of an otherwise faulty approach in either building buildings or retrofitting buildings. So I just want to get to the whole, you solve this problem and then everything changes. It's the first time I've actually heard of it. So it's got me a little perplexed because anyone who works in demand side management, program design, utilities, the root of it in part, is energy efficiency. We have to save energy, save, reduce consumption, all those types of things. Yes, I guess in theory it's possible, but the reality is is that in order for that technological solution to be possible, how we measure, how we manage, how we distribute energy would have to shift radically. In the interim, that's not the case. So if we can't apply that type of solution today, not because of the technological side, but because of all the other impediments and getting wholesale market adoption. And when we think about eco-districts and we think about smart cities, a lot of this is still very much conceptual. A lot of it is in certain facets of the world or it's at very limited scale. From an idea perspective, your concept's very, very interesting. From an application perspective, at least in this decade, I don't think we're quite there yet. It's a fair point, a bit uh, sort of sad, (laughs) I would say, (laughs) or depressing. It's definitely a great point because, I mean, if you want to move this, you have to play the game that is already being played, right? More or less, as in working with industry dynamics, the people, the processes, the business model, how people sort of like take decisions based on this. But I'm also thinking, again, like you can't build the future on yesterday's technology. That is one. Maybe you can, but I'm not really sure how smart it is at some point. And also building the future on yesterday's mindset. Again, because I see this so much in building automation. You're doing the same things because the stuff that you work with is that buildings are supposed to be broken, you know? 
building automation by so like its wording is an automated building. That's not necessarily the case, but it could be if we design it to be, if we have that intent as in not like removing people from the equation so that we can do things better. That's again, like going back to construction. I see that if they just build the damn buildings better from the get-go with the opportunity for having smartness through the entire life cycle, 95% of all the problems that people spend their life fixing during the entire life cycle, they just go away or they will be very, very different, I would say. It's been on my mind for the last couple of years, but I haven't heard about it. I haven't heard anyone talk about it this way because they assume, maybe correctly so, I mean, again, like that their existing infrastructure is there, is there to stay. But when I look at the technology that is out there, that is working, and I look at smart grid opportunities and all these kind of things, there is the possibility to completely disrupt or like reinvent how the way you're working in this space. But again, like you're the expert. So summarize then, I'm not wrong, but in real life perspectives, getting down from that uh, space station perspective, I'm dead wrong because it won't function. It won't happen. Like the people, the players, everything in this industry today would sort of like be against me. Yeah. So it's very interesting how you're talking about everything because a lot of what you just said, I can identify with. So as an American, the most inspirational moment in my country's history, which I really think was more of a world shared event, was the Apollo 11 missions, right? So growing up as a young boy and being interested in science and being interested in energy, when I first started tracking climate data to any degree or being mindful of it was in the 1980s, right? And I'm sitting here going, oh, this is a problem and we have to address this problem. Well, originally, I thought we would have some kind of moonshot. I thought that there would be a global coalition coming from America that we would take a leadership position and address this problem. Well, there's an issue to me why that has not happened. And that issue is free market capitalism or the existing free market capitalism where big energy, big banking, big utilities, whoever it may be, and I'm not picking on any one of these industries, they make their money. They are where they are today in part based upon a system that from a technology standpoint is largely outmoded. Utilities were created many, 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 many years ago. And a lot of it in part has to do with the centralization of power. Ultimately, I think in order to see the technological change and transformation that the world needs, you can't do that outside of capitalism. And a lot of people have been talking about carbon taxes or other measures to account for the externalities of carbon and energy usage and things of that ilk. And then you can get into ESG reporting and fiscal governance. And capitalism has brought us to this point in large point. But in recent months, I'm starting to think that they also, the same system, the same people to an extent that I perceive are part of the problem are going to wind up being a part of the solution. And this is why nobody that holds assets, banks, insurance agencies, actuaries, people are monitoring risk. Those entities are going to be looking at their loan portfolios. They're going to be looking at their insurance portfolio. They're going to be looking at their asset portfolio and go, wait a minute, 
we don't want to be left holding the bag. What's the most important thing right now? And I think it's going to be a story about occupancy is that we know that there's a vaccine. We know that's going to be administered. But if you own a large portfolio of assets across the country or you're a Starbucks, as an example, you still have to say to your employees that you're attempting to mitigate risk. And to some extent, when we get out of or we start lessening the Zoom environment and start doing some face-to-face business, you also need to say to your customers, come back to the retail bank, come back to the built environment. So if I think about this, technology in and of itself is not necessarily enough to drive change. Because if technology was enough to drive change, as an example, solar panels were on the White House when Carter was in the, you know, I'm talking over 40 years ago, but the technology really didn't take off until recent years. And a lot of it has to do with economic outmoded systems. So I think that this is awesome. I love what you're saying. I agree one million thousand percent of exactly this, right? It's managing risk. But I think like a lot of the pension funds, at least in Sweden, I think elsewhere in the world, right? They have so much money tied to real estate, to assets, commercial assets. We saw like in 2008, 2009, 2012, 2013, sort of what happened to that industry. So I think like in 2021, we see that there's an exodus from cities. And again, like I talked to someone in New York also today, and he said that there was a credit card company had like 3,200 people. So like max occupancy in a building, they had like 70 people there. And then they said like, okay, we're going to be there in December 17th. We're going to show that we can come back to the offices, all these kind of things. They had 17 people in there, you know, 17 people or 3,200. Will all of them go back when, when this is done, whenever that is, the new normal, as in, I don't know, summer 2021? If you want to think about it, what happened in part with the pandemic and COVID is a stark failure to monitor and to assess risk on a granular level. And if there's one positive aspect that comes out of the pandemic related to the built environment, if you have this asset pool, of which many people do, I'm sure even some of the people that are listening to your podcast, that's significant, but you can't monitor your assets on a more granular level, Part of me is like, shame on you for spending tens of millions of dollars in building and acquiring assets, but then not really knowing what's going inside and not really being able to wholly quantify utilization of space. I think what's going to wind up happening, this is an opportunity for technology to be part of the solution and say that, look, we can really discern in these 25 buildings We know what's going on in the square footage. We know the energy use. We know when a part of the building is not occupied. And if that's the case, ultimately, that's a better performing asset as an owner, as a tenant, and as somebody who's underwriting the building or somebody who's trying to value the building. The idea behind an asset, whether it be a home, whether it be a commercial building, whether it be an industrial building, Again, if you can monitor it, so in the case of Green Street Lending, we're making loans. The person's making a, is borrowing money to make the built environment more energy efficient or to have it generate energy. And because they're doing that, we now have data. One of the singular most important things that I learned 
through that program, people were intentionally borrowing money to make it a better performing asset, right? In theory, they're going to produce energy consumption and they're going to generate energy. Well, I can say that the entire time that I had purview within the loan portfolio, there was not one default, right? So that means something to scale, but you only know that in part by measuring it. So what I'm hoping is as people go back into cities, as corporate workspaces try to develop a balance between work from home and the office type space environment, will building owners, will corporations become more committed to truly measuring assets on a real granular level? Because if you're not measuring assets on a granular level, you are exposed to risk. If we would have this conversation a year ago or one or two years ago, 100%, right? But now if you got an asset that's like houses 3,200 people, there's 17 people in it. Why would I put sensors everywhere to manage what? There's no one there. Okay, so making the argument to myself, okay, fair enough, that's now during COVID. Now we're going to get people back to buildings. In order to get people back to buildings, we need to make sure that they're safe. You have all these sensors and you have ultraviolet, whatever, something that screens for corona. And you can exactly say that, well, now Robert is in the building and all these people are in the building. The air quality is this, indoor air quality, occupancy. So I think like before occupancy comes indoor air quality, especially now to get people back to buildings. And then it becomes like occupancy to see where people are going, what they're doing and all these kind of things. But I think the problem right now is that will people go back to buildings as they were before? Probably not. New normal will be like this because a lot of the major corporations, they say that you can work from home. I mean, everyone knows about all this kind of stuff, right? And then again, people are shifting risk from traditional assets to more performing assets where people are, which are in the rural areas, maybe. Or will they sort of like struggle and just keep pushing, deploying sensors after sensors in buildings where there's not going to be any people in, hoping for the best? Again, going back to what you said, as in it's capitalism at its finest, almost, that is going to drive the change that we'll see in the future. Because they're so terrified of losing money, as of course they should be. Just look at mobility patterns. Where are people moving? What is going to happen? I mean, I think it goes back to what the new normal would be like, because it's like people have now built summer houses. They've settled in. They know that they're not going to be able to travel. And all these things combined, that is what shapes the new normal. Not what we wish it to be, but the decisions that have been made during this one year. Here's more from the Beyond Building sponsor, Iden Proptic OS. Iden Proptic OS is powered by the data mapping capabilities of the open source semantic language Real Estate Core, which unlocks a host of smart building benefits. By leveraging the potential of existing building data, owners can facilitate better building utilization, new customer services, and more efficient building communications. Iden Proptic OS is free from reliance on proprietary systems. It connects smart buildings to a shared development marketplace, new services, and possibilities on a far larger scale, including the latest energy, certification, utilization, and communication applications. If you want to scale into the future and have a platform to go beyond buildings, then PropTech OS is something for you. Find out more at idenrealestate.com. Okay, so you're here right now in the podcast. You listen to the podcast. You have the floor. What do you want to say? What should we do for the future? How to get to like the moonshot? What is the moonshot for energy space or buildings or whatever it is? 
I want to take uh, umbrage with uh, one of the comments that I kind of saw on your LinkedIn where people were talking about the whole digital twin and, and the uh, nomenclature of technology. I think that it's incredibly important that futurists, technologists, engineers, that's part of our job. So I totally disagree with the idea that these terms aren't important. I, I think they're incredibly important. We have to simplify concepts in the future and make it accessible to as many people as possible because there is a tremendous amount of concern about the future. Many, many people have lost their jobs in the pandemic. There's a significant lack of clarity around the future and what does work look like. And when people hear artificial intelligence, they think about losing jobs and they hear building automation. What does that mean for me? Part of our responsibility uh, as, as leaders in the space and trying to act as a catalyst for change is to make it accessible so as change is happening, people can more readily adopt it and understand how it's going to improve their lives. I know that that's been part of the challenge in renewable energy and how you're displacing other energy sources. So I, I think that that's important. The second issue is we are able to look at building portfolios. And if we are able to look at building portfolios and better understand occupancy and energy usage and space utilization on a granular level, I think that there's a means and a mechanism to grow our cities again and mark assets to market in kind of like real time. But again, these types of things are very disorienting to many people. How is AI going to impact healthcare? What does smart buildings mean for me in the rural area? We have to be able to communicate and convey change in a way that's accessible. So when I hear people going, oh, I don't, you know, the digital twin, I don't think we should call it that or that's a hokey type thing. I completely disagree. Just to summarize then, okay, so it's important for the ones that sort of try to make change or try to advise others, whatever capacity, that sort of, again, like know what they're talking about and sort of not just stare at the definitions, but actually understand these kind of things with the ultimate goal of bringing things faster time to market, creating value faster. So I love that perspective. And of course, again, like crypto and blockchain, DLT, distributed ledger technology, all these kind of things is very for lack of a better word, cryptic for most people, of course. And I agree as in, it's our job to make it accessible. And I think that's a great way to put it, right? How do we make digital twins accessible for the most people? Even if we don't sort of like use the term digital twins, but we should be able to convey what it means for everyone that are in buildings or worked with buildings, give concrete examples from an everyday perspective. I think that that's something that I need to do better. Although I think like the listeners of the podcast are the nerds that love the ontologies or digital twins and they want to figure this out. But again, like making it accessible, I think that's something that I should do with my right hand. If the left hand is doing, you know, technology, understanding all this kind of stuff, then the right hand should type out the stuff that making it more accessible, letting go of the buzzword bingo and actually making sense of this for people. You've definitely given me a lot to think about in this podcast. And I think now I've been going at it for five years, really, really strong, trying to understand all these kind of things. And I think now the next five years, making it more accessible for people 
staying away from the buzzword bingo, that's probably going to be my moonshot, my Beyond Buildings podcast mission to make it more accessible, I think. If it's not us, who's going to do this digital twin demystification or AI, 5G, machine learning? Someone's got to do it. I think we have to contribute and collaborate in doing it this kind of way. If this is possible, technology is there. It's here to do these kind of things, to completely create the future with an abundance of energy for all. Will it happen in big cities or will it happen from rural areas, depending also on what we talked about today? So how do you make it happen faster and where will it happen? If you can properly quantify the value of an asset, the market itself will drive change. When I think about a building or a group of buildings, and this is kind of when I get into the granularity of data and the information being gathered, if we are really wanting to hasten the rate of change and accelerate market adoption, we need to be monitoring assets on a more granular level. Because if if we do that over time, you're going to see that they're better performing assets. You're going to be able to quantify that the investments being made in energy generation, in energy efficiency, in a more comfortable building are going to lead to a happier tenant, a higher resale value, all those types of things. And to get to your other point, I think it will be in cities first. And the reason I think it will be in cities first is their balance sheet. So if I'm sitting there as New York City and I have all this downside exposure to millions of people leaving the city, reducing the tax base and things of that ilk, I'm going to do everything possible to incentivize those people to come back to work and come back to their homes. And this is where they're kind of tied together. How do you do that? Well, you have to mitigate risk. Usually when you come back, there's a reinvention. This is an opportunity for reinvention. I think it provides an opening for progressive technologies, for our industry to say that, look, we have done things the old way. We have worked with outmoded systems. We have, to some degree, ignored some of these things. If you want to mitigate risk, if you want a better performing asset, if you want to better quantify the building envelope, you've got to measure it. And by measuring it, you're more adaptable to the future. And if you're more adaptable to the future, you can have people live and thrive in cities. In summation, I think cities will take the lead. They're going to take the lead in part because of their balance sheet. And if you want to mitigate risk on your balance sheet, you have to measure it. So that's just how I see it. Awesome. I think that's a phenomenal answer. My uh, comments I leave for the next episode. So that's a cliffhanger. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining, Robert. If people want to find you, how do they find you? I do have a website, crossconsultingservices.com, but the easiest way to interact is just find me through my LinkedIn profile. Perfect. Good stuff. Thank you so much for joining the Beyond Buildings podcast. I had a blast. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Nicholas. I really enjoy the podcast and everybody that comes on here. We have to be catalysts for change. So it's been a lot of fun this year. This episode is sponsored by Iden Proptic OS, the operating system for building owners. Thank you so much for listening to the Beyond Buildings podcast. Remember to like, share, and subscribe. And if you like this episode, make sure to tune in to the next one and also see if other episodes could be something for you. 
your host, the master of the metaverse, Nicholas Wern.